Welcome to New Models 2021 Grammy Awards After Show. I'm your host, Lil Internet. Record of the Year, Everything I Wanted, Billie Eilish. So we begin with Billie Eilish, the Academy's officially endorsed bedroom pop star. I am very happy that Melancholy is back, that a sad song is the record of the year. Whispered vocals, drowning piano, the sound of hibernation and hope. Good mood for a bad year, and feel-good songs are boring, so it is pretty cool that this won. Album of the Year, Folklore, Taylor Swift. Critics call this the ultimate quarantine album. Folklore is also pretty melancholy, but all the melodies sound familiar. Like GPT-3 crunched all the ballads from the last 40 years and spit out 16 new songs. There's a huge list of personnel on the album. Trombones and string sections and steel guitars and vibraphones. The Academy loves shit like this. Taylor talks about grocery stores and dive bars. She's living a regular suburban life, just like you. In fact, you, regular suburbanite, are Taylor Swift. And this is the soundtrack to your struggles and sacrifices, transgressions, broken hearts, and repentance. The official score for a solipsistic illusion that your story is the only story in the world. Song of the Year, I Can't Breathe by Her. NPR darling Her's Black Lives Matter anthem won Song of the Year, but this is the award for the songwriter, not the performer. The songwriter is Dernst Emil II, son of notable Haitian musician parents. His father was a Zouk instrumentalist, and his mother did backup vocals on Roxy Music Avalon and Brian Ferry Boys and Girls, touring for both, which is extremely cool because those records are some of my all-time favorites. The song I Can't Breathe itself didn't really do numbers, but political relevance and a second-generation music industry figure is obviously a combo too good for the Academy to pass up. Best new artist, Megan Thee Stallion. Okay, fine. Best pop vocal album, Future Nostalgia by Dua Lipa. Ah yes, another record where like a hundred people worked on it. It's a good album when the string sections hit the frizzin zone, but the title, Future Nostalgia, betrays the fact that it again sounds like a musical GPT-3 project, this time permutating Daft Punk, 2000's Kylie, Disco Beck, Jamiroquai, Murder on the Dance Floor, Electro Madonna, and Cut Copy or something. I wonder how much machine learning is already used in pop writing. But I guess producers have their own algorithms, like Dr. Luke taking an old disco hit, making a new song over top of it, and then deleting the original, stealing its essence without using any samples. Best R&B performance, Black Parade by Beyonce. So this is Beyonce's 135th Grammy or something. There must be an unwritten Academy rule that's like, having trouble, just Beyonce. Black Parade was a charity single for Bay's Black Business Impact Fund, and it came out on Juneteenth. It's also a Black Lives Matter song that comparatively didn't do big numbers. Is the Academy giving Grammys to artists solely for recognizing Black Lives Matter a good thing? I mean, yes, it encourages others to do the same and shows the Academy's commitment to these issues. But in the words of 6ix9ine, numbers don't lie. And the music consumers obviously prefer escapism to politics, like No Limit and Cash Money ending the late 90s run of conscious hip-hop back in the day. The incongruity between popularity and awards gives a suspicious industry sheen to choices like this. Because it seems that when and where political purpose is applied as a metric is arbitrary. It's like the intention is totally commendable, but the public perception is a different story. Best rap song, Savage Remix, Megan Thee Stallion featuring Beyonce. Oh sorry, it's Beyonce's 275th Grammy. 
a woman power anthem that went viral on TikTok, co-written by The Dream who has evaded more than zero domestic assault charges. Why shouldn't this win? The track is dark and sparse and tough, which is kind of cool, especially up against the saccharineness of DaBaby and Roddy Rich Rockstar, which was like a less jokey mutation of Old Town Road. Rockstar was a real everyman song, the anthem for high school quarterbacks from corn country and real shooters from Atlanta on a good day. But sorry guys, it was ladies night. Best solo pop performance, Watermelon Sugar by Harry Styles. This is seriously some Austin Power shit. Like, ooh, how deliciously psychedelic. Yeah, baby, it's Harry Styles with candy cane rainbows and kaleidoscope gumdrops. It's really so cringe, but rumor has it the Styles stands were leaving severed goat heads on the doorstep of Academy members' homes, as well as threatening to release adrenochrome-related compromat if Harry didn't at least win one category. So that's why this happened. The song has a billion streams on Spotify, and sounds like it could have come out at any time in the last 35 years. Best Melodic Rap Performance Lockdown by Anderson Pop. Okay, the difference between rap and melodic rap seems entirely arbitrary. Like, DaBaby Rockstar, which didn't win this category either, is apparently both rap and melodic rap. Anyways, Lockdown by Anderson Pac is another Juneteenth BLM song with comparatively low numbers. I mean, I get it, Rockstar's most sing-along line is, this ain't no guitar bitch, this a Glock. So maybe it is better to go with Pac's more sober sincerity. But again, it has this uneasy feeling of the Academy doing the right thing. 22 million streams for Lockdown versus Rockstar's 1 billion. That's a 50x difference. Also, Anderson Pac is another artist whose music sounds like it could have been from any time in the past few decades. A GPT-3 crunching D'Angelo, Slum Village, Jill Scott. Best Latin Pop or Urban Album, THLQMDLG by Bad Bunny. Totally 100% fine and good, Bad Bunny is like a hero. Best Country Album, Wild Card by Miranda Lambert. I don't really listen to country or know anything about it, but everything about this is weird. The production on the album sounds really weird. Like you're listening to it inside of a Ford F-150 even when you're wearing headphones. Oh, sorry. Like you're listening to it inside of a Dodge Ram 1500 because Miranda Lambert is sponsored by Ram. Miranda doesn't talk about politics, but her parents met when her mom was attending cheerleading camp at age 15, where she fell in love with the local 24-year-old undercover narcotics cop. Pedonarc and Pom Pom waited a few years before getting together, you know, so it wouldn't be rape, and then married and became private detectives who literally helped impeach Bill Clinton. Miranda Lambert herself is now married to a cop. This story is 100% true. A whole lot of fucking cops around this award, Academy. Were you blackmailed? Was this a compulsory pro-cop award made in a smoky backroom deal to balance out all the Black Lives Matter awards? What the fuck is going on, Academy? Best Rock! Okay, The Strokes won Best Rock Album and a black woman, Brittany Howard, won Best Rock Song. Now I feel like I'm hyper aware of the race of every winner, as if identity is factoring into every decision. But it's supposed to, right? Rock and roll is black music, and black people have been deprived of awards in this category long enough. But like, who is the Academy? All I can picture is extras from Eyes Wide Shut or something. Best Rock Performance, Fetch the Bolt Cutters by Fiona Apple. Everyone loved her album, Fine, but it's a nostalgic act, right? I'm starting to see a pattern here. Best Rap Album, King's Disease by Nas. 
Okay, the rap album nominees felt extremely astroturfed. Like the Academy really wants to manifest backpacker shit back into existence. The youngest rapper nominated for the best rap album was 35. 35! Nobody under 35 even listened to Nas's new album. It's about gout, for fuck's sake. And it won. Best Rap Performance, Savage Remix, Megan Thee Stallion and Beyonce. Sorry, this is Beyonce's 782nd Grammy Award. At this point, it just seems lazy and arbitrary and confusing. Like, let's give half the Grammys to low numbers Black Lives Matter songs, but then the other half to one single TikTok super smash. No award for Lil Baby's Black Lives Matter track this time. No posthumous award for Pop Smoke or Nipsey Hussle. No award for DaBaby, who is clearly the best rapper to emerge in recent history. And obviously no award for white SoundCloud wonderkund Jack Harlow. The Academy must have just been really tired and grumpy and just put Beyonce by default. Best pop duo group performance, Rain On Me, Lady Gaga and Ariana Grande. Boys Noise was a writer on this, but because the category is performance, he didn't get a Grammy. Sorry, Alex. The Academy is obviously still holding out against K-pop. BTS was nominated and did not win, even though it did more numbers and the group performed at the ceremony. I feel like the Academy seriously fears K-pop, like it's some alien technology far more complex and advanced than their own, with far more personnel doing far more complicated jobs, like a birthing pod nutrient balancer, vocal cord and muscle designer, black culture consultant and coach, childhood memory coordinator, free will suppressioneer, and psychic escapee hunter tracker and body dissolver. Best R&B album. It's John Legend, whatever, old guys, again. Best progressive R&B album. It is what it is by Thundercat. First of all, it is what it is is one of my least favorite expressions. And I really don't get the category of progressive R&B, but I guess it is what it is. Thundercat definitely made a work of future nostalgia here to borrow Dua Lipa's album title again, so it doesn't feel that progressive to me, unless progressive just means GPT-3 pastiches. Thundercat comes from a musical family. Him and his brother were in suicidal tendencies, so that's cool. But progressive? I feel like the entire Grammys can be summed up in two album titles. Future Nostalgia and It Is What It Is. Best R&B Song, Better Than I Imagined by Robert Glasper featuring her. Robert Glasper is a jazz pianist from Houston, and the song has a her feature. Real musicianship, low numbers, NPR, the Academy pushing back against platform metrics and recognizing sheer talent. It is what it is. I'd still rather listen to Party Next Door. Best alternative album, Fetch the Bolt Cutters by Fiona Apple. Again, cool. I guess the Tame Impala versus Beck nomination situation made Fiona the safe bet. I mean, this is the kind of situation that could tear ad agencies apart. Junior art directors who specialize in urban outdoors campaigns screaming their devotion to Tame Impala in strategy meetings, while senior creatives famous for making MTV interstitials in the 90s fire entire departments for not respecting Beck. Best music video, Brown Skin Girl, Beyonce. Sorry, this is Beyonce's 948th Grammy Award and Blue Ivy's first of at least 200,000. Of course it's a beautiful video, but when you check the YouTube, the lyrics are in the description but not the video director or any of the crew. It ends up the video was co-directed by Beyonce herself with Jen Nakiru. So Beyonce basically got this award for directing and doing the song. 
I'm looking very forward to the future when Beyonce starts sweeping the Nobel Prizes for like astrophysics. Best Contemporary Christian Music Album, Jesus is King, Kanye West. Yes, definitely give this award to the Trump-supporting rapper who made a Christian album during an extended Manic episode and threw the last Grammy he got in the toilet and literally pissed on it. If I was a lifelong Christian musician, I'd be fucking furious about this. But if I was a lifelong Christian musician and I was furious instead of forgiving, I wouldn't be a good Christian. So it's like Kanye winning is a test from God of the real Christian artist's Christianness. I'm pretty sure the Academy is just fucked in the head. Best Global Music Album, Twice As Tall, Burna Boy. Okay, obviously there just needs to be an Afrobeat category. You can't put Burna Boy next to Bebel Gilberto and Anushka Shankar just because they're all not from the Anglo world. There's amazing music coming out of Africa and it should either have its own category or even better it should be winning in the regular categories. Don't put it in this weird ghetto of incongruous amorphous exoticism. Best Dance Rec- I'm combining Best Dance Recording and Best Dance Electronic Album together because K. Trinata won both. Again, this identity hyper-awareness is itching at me. K. Trinata is Haitian and gay and really exceptionally talented, but there's something really weird about these wins. Something conspicuous that makes it feel like a diversity play more than anything else. I know this sounds really dicey and is kind of unfair to K. Trinata, but hear me out. The K. Trinata album is not a dance or electronic album. It's a pop album, or maybe even a progressive R&B album. Almost every track has a vocal feature, and it's also another work of future nostalgia. It doesn't feel far from the sound of Anderson Pac or Thundercat or even Dua Lipa for that matter. So like, why is K. Trinata even in these categories? It feels totally shoehorned. But aside from house DJ and producer Jada K, K. Trinata is the only black person in this category. And it's 100% a category black people should have more representation in because they fucking invented house and techno. Of course, the problem is K. Trinata's record is not a house or techno record. It's not even a dance record or an electronic record. So why is it here? Another case where the intention is right, but the perception just doesn't make sense. Best metal performance, bum rush, body count. Okay, I'm pissed about this one. Pissed. Yes, black guys playing political metal is cool, but Ice-T does not need a Grammy. And as political as they were, Body Count was always sort of a gimmick. Ice-T was already an actor by the time the first Body Count album came out in 1992. He played a cop in New Jack City. And Body Count got famous after their song Cop Killer started a nationwide hysteria, being released literally weeks before the Rodney King riots. To this day, Cop Killer isn't on Spotify. Anyways, 30 years later, Body Count is obviously just some tough dads having fun and taking some political aggression out. And that's what the Grammys are all about, right? Dads having fun. Like, that's actually a serious possibility. Body Count was up against Code Orange and fucking Power Trip. With the tragic death of Power Trip's Riley Gale, the Academy could have at least given the medal award to a white guy, but no. Even the medal award went to the political band of people of color, even if the political band is kind of your dad's weekend hobby. I'm just gonna stop here though, because I'm starting to feel kind of bad, like a grouchy MAGA boomer shaking my fist about how the Grammys went all woke and all the awards are virtue signals. But it is weird when it all seems so transparent, right? When decisions seem arbitrarily political and identity-based, categories seem irrelevant. 
And awards go to Black Lives Matter anthems that never actually became Black Lives Matter anthems. And of course, the Country Music Award still goes to a cop-spawned goddess of cops. It feels like an institution totally disregarding the listeners that enable it to exist. Maybe the Academy really is just pushing back against the big platforms, against the algorithmic drive to sameness, against the dominance of metrics. Aside from Billie Eilish, of course, who is their darling of the bedroom Spotify TikTok star generation for whatever reason. Maybe she escaped from an adrenochrome harvest as a child and is keeping it secret in exchange for unimaginable success. But if the Academy is pushing back against the homogenizing force of the algorithms, why does the future nostalgia sound they are pushing seem so algorithmically determined itself? Is it because it's determined by the Academy's own human algorithms? developed and tuned over decades since the days of Motown and Nashville songwriting science? Then again, the Academy does seem to be taking a stand for legacy, for history, for music that is developed by people passing down skills and knowledge to subsequent generations, instead of the instant mega-scaled focus groups of the social media platforms and YouTube tutorials. I mean, maybe all of the Academy astroturfing is astroturfing for good. A statement that music will not become just a meme. That music will stay musical, meaningful, politically aware, with talented black artists getting the recognition they deserve, regardless of streams and metrics. Black artists who aren't just world-building a luridly aspirational hungry ghost fantasy of big egos and money and guns and drugs and Brazilian butt lifts. A fantasy consumed by largely white audiences, by the way. Maybe the astroturfing is good, and maybe this is why gatekeeping is good as well. Because it prevents things from just becoming steamrolled, flattened, and limbic system hacked into the lowest common denominator by the tyranny of the online masses. Or maybe the academy is just out of touch, using political signals as leverage in an attempt to endear themselves to a public who is demanding institutional accountability, if not outright abolishment. I mean, this is an institution that in 2021 gave an award to a gimmicky political metal band infamous for releasing a song about killing cops during the LA riots in the 90s. An institution that gave one of the greatest rappers of all time his first Grammy award at age 47 for his album about gout. And an institution that gave pop album of the year to a record literally called Future Nostalgia. In the words of Billie Eilish, if I knew it all then, would I do it again? Future nostalgia is what the Academy is desperate to project. But both their future and their nostalgia is too little, too late. Hey everybody, Carly here. Quick note. There's been a lot of talk about gatekeeping lately, and it's a theme that you'll hear repeatedly on this episode. Whether you think it's good or bad, it's undeniable that a shift in gatekeeping, or maybe better said, a change in the location and permeability of the gates themselves, makes talking about culture and value strange. The remarkable thing about the Grammys, or really any award show of late is, as Little Internet mapped out, and as theorist Martin Gurry has famously said, the failure of the institution to filter the mess of the world into a story that is both coherent and aligns with the public's actual real-time values. Beyonce has won 948 Grammys because giving Beyonce an award validates the Academy as recognizing the one artist that the public also recognizes as worthy of an award. 
In the episode that follows, we have a different kind of gate crisis. We begin with an interview with seasoned art critic Andrew Russeth to look back at the legacy of New York Gallery Metro Pictures, which has been home to some of the world's most critically engaged and critically acclaimed artists since it opened in the early 1980s. Think Cindy Sherman, Louise Lawler, Richard Prince, Robert Longo, Martin Kippenberger, Fred Wilson, Mike Kelly, and more recently, the likes of Isaac Julian, Claire Fontaine, and Trevor Paglin. If you've spent time in the art world, that list of names comes with bolded subtext of damn, heavyweight, wow, no way, and maybe even compels the retelling of an anecdote proving your proximity to the scene. That one nightmarish time when you spilled a drink on Cindy Sherman and didn't at first realize it was her. But for just as many listening, only some of those names may register, because the art world, like the Academy, is in the process of relocating its gates, or replacing them with Bluetooth-enabled key scanners, or maybe just token keys, and no one right now knows exactly who or how to be in this purgatory when it comes to culture evaluation. Whatever world you're from, you might notice on this episode a conspicuous generalism, a feeling of never getting specialist and always explaining things that 10 years ago or even five years ago, one would pointedly not explain because having the knowledge to follow along was what earned you passage through the gate. Before I stop this preamble, I'll also add that we experimented with Zencaster for this recording. While useful for interviews, we'll be going back to our live body arrangement with the three of us in one room for future apps so that we can all return to, blissfully for us, if maddening for you, talking over each other IRL. All right, so without further ado, here's writer and critic Andrew Russith on Metro Pictures calling in from Seoul. So we're joined by Andrew. We're really happy to have you here. Andrew, would you please introduce yourself? Yes, I, my name is Andrew Russith. Uh, I'm waving, but this won't be on video, right? Uh, and <laughs> no. I am, uh, I'm a writer based in Seoul. And you variously served as executive editor of Art News, um, deputy editor of Surface Magazine, yeah, yeah. senior editor of the New York Observer. Am I getting this right? This is you from memory. You did your research, so yes, all okay, true. Okay, cool. Um, and, and also, I think, has a pretty good dessert blog, if that's right, too. Oh, wow, thank um, you. Yeah, I do. Love that. <laughs> Are you? Did you move to soul for the desserts? Well, that was a total bonus. We moved here because uh, my wife is an editor and her job took us here. So I'm just along okay. for the Got it. You know, one thing I really appreciate is not just that you always have very good insights in your art criticism and you're a great writer, but I think like us, you span this sea change that happened in the art world between the mid-aughts and now. And for those of us who are active in this previous art world, the closing of Metro, Metro Pictures, a gallery in New York, is really significant. I, I don't want to wax nostalgic about it. I mean, the gallery had been open for 40 years, but I thought it would be interesting to reconstruct a bit why Metro was so significant when it first came onto the scene in the early 80s and what that generation's artist represented. Totally. Well, me, yeah. Metro is kind of a real old school sensibility of what your gallery will be. It'll be one shop and as opposed to having, you know, 10 galleries on a bunch of continents and flying around to a million art fairs. But I guess, yeah, to go to the beginning, they broke onto the scene 1980. Uh, Helene Weiner, artist space director. So she'd been involved in kind of the alternative scene in New York and Janelle Rearing coming from Castelli Gallery, of course, like storied pop art and abstract expressionist to a degree. And 
yeah, deciding to open up shop in Soho just as Soho was becoming a thing. And the opening show has Cindy Sherman, Robert Longo, Richard Prince, Sherry Levine. I mean, just a total murderer's row of people for their generation, artists who grew up in the 50s, 60s, 70s with television, with the explosion of media, magazines, TV, films, were really addressing the mass cultural images in a way that was playful and fun and just took off. So we call these artists the pictures generation. In a lot of ways, that moment, the late 70s, is not unlike our own. There's a show that happens in New York in 1977. Uh, Helene Weiner comes to Douglas Crimp or vice versa, and they decide to do the show called Pictures. Can you just sketch out for us what that was and what the significance of it was? Yeah, and and so that is, um, it just, and I think it's remarkable to flash back and think about that era where there are so few galleries, and this has come up in the interviews they've been doing about the closure. I mean, there were few commercial galleries showing young art, and there were few alternative spaces in general anywhere in New York. And so, yeah, Helene Weiner is running Artist Space, invites Douglas Crimpin, and I think it's Troy Brontok, it's Robert Longo, Sherry Levine. And yeah, all doing work that is really about how images are constructed. So to think about like classic work of that era, it's Richard Prince. I think that might be a little bit later, but Richard Prince doing like the Marlboro men. So cropping Marlboro cigarette advertisements to focus on the seductiveness of it. Cindy Sherman is doing her untitled film stills, kind of imagining constructed movies, one photograph films, as people often say. Sherry Levine is pretty soon just reproducing other people's photographs, re-photographing them. So just thinking about how meaning is constructed around art, how it's quote-unquote authored, and how it enters into a canon. As the totally art-naive person in the conversation, um, I wonder what kind of work was selling in the market at the time that they opened? Like what they were showing, was it different or in opposition to what was popular in the market at the time? What was the market at the time? Or, yeah, yeah. I think I think that's a really interesting point. And, and it goes to your point earlier about the kind of parallel with our moment, maybe. I mean, there's this sense in the late 70s that there's a kind of confusion or, I mean, minimalism's been around, conceptualism has been around. There's for sure a market for that. But a lot of that stuff is only so saleable. And then you have this moment, like late 70s, 1980 Metro Pictures, where suddenly this photographic work and then along with it, a kind of rise in a new type of painting with neo-expressionism suddenly can grab people's attention. And at that time, pop art, Warhols, or even the kind of neo-dadas with Rauschenberg Johns, I mean, they've been around for 15, 20 years, and there is this need for a turn of the page. It's also interesting at this time because you have the rise of this light industry, neoliberal culture. I feel like there's a parallel to what we're going through now. Um, but Andrew, you worked at the gallery actually yeah, for... Yeah, yeah. yeah, pretty briefly. Yeah, like 10 oh, years okay. ago for like nine months. But yeah, dream job for sure. So I wonder like when you were working there and what was your conception of the gallery's legacy at that point? 2010 was like a shift moment where the art world did start to change. Do you remember what you felt the gallery represented in the public imaginary at that moment? Yeah, totally. I mean, again, with without romanticizing too much, there was an appeal that there was a gallery with a lot of integrity, right? As all of these galleries at that precise moment were taking on more and more artists and becoming each a kind of shopping mall where you could 
go to David Zwarner and you could get your minimalist and you could get your German painter. Metro was an example where like they were really interested in the construction of images and the ways in which you can sample and borrow and rethink and rework the meaning of images. You know, also unlike a lot of galleries now, so many of those artists had hung around from the very beginning, Cindy Sherman and Robert Longo and my all-time favorite artist, Louis Lawler, showing there from the very beginning. And yeah, having a sense that when they were taking on new artists, it tied into that legacy. I wonder why did it close now? I mean, there's probably technical reasons, but can you name a reason? I don't know. I mean, they said in interviews that it was not a result of sales and it was kind of this sense of they'd done it for 40 years and the pandemic had been really grueling and they felt like it was a nice moment to hand over the reins or hand it over to another generation. And and so I guess they're going to stay open for some part of the rest of the year and transition artists to other galleries. And do you think it's a bit of a surrender? Does it feel like giving up, like acknowledging that the the (laughs) relevance, even though the work is so relevant and what they did is, but that that model is just, I mean, yeah, I I wonder, I mean, it's, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, both Rearing and Weiner have done interviews and they've put it in a pretty positive light saying like, oh, you know, the art world's changing and what we were doing, it's kind of fading. And I'm tempted to read something into that where the, the model has changed and the future is kind of these giant galleries who want to have these big digital presences. But then I'm always hesitant to overstate that because, you know, people our age in their 30s, younger in their 20s are still running great little galleries and there are other ways of doing it. On their statement, they said that there was the anticipated arrival of a very different art world. I mean, is that very different art world? I mean, I hear Carly talk about it a lot and it seems that everyone is anticipating an arrival of a very different art world. But I wonder if that definition has been formalized. Is everyone expecting something different? Is everyone just totally speculating, but all just have this feeling? What is the very different art world? That's a good question. I personally feel like as someone who has been following contemporary art for 15, 20 years, there's just so much and things have become so interconnected and in ways taste has become so interconnected globally that there's a certain monoculture, but then at the same time, there's almost too much to get a handle on. And I feel like Metro represents the moment where you could have a real consensus of taste and say, you know, gosh, like here are the five most important artists in New York and they're all showing in this group show, which is just unfathomable now. That's so true. And when you think about heavyweight critics like Benjamin Buclo and Rosalind Krauss and uh, some of the people who are involved with the Critical Art Journal October, Metro was really a ground zero for their thinking in the 80s. I mean, so much of their theory ends up being focused on these artists. And it's really the prime model of that gallery critic apparatus of value production. And I mean, I wonder, like as a critic, do you see that model having come undone or what levers no longer quite have the agency? they used to? um, Or is something like that possible? Oh, man, no, it's such a good question. Because so undergrad, I studied art history, my very first art history class was taught by Rosalind Krauss, which totally warped my yeah, amazing. And totally like, (laughs) I mean, she was incredible, but also like totally warped my views on like 20th century art in a lot of ways. (laughs) And, and then yeah, thinking about the fact that that was a moment where Buclo and Krauss And then how Foster could sort of be these giants. And it's funny, if you go back and look at old Metro press releases, they'll oftentimes open with like, 
a quote from like Helfast or, you know, Craig Owens or which yeah. now, I mean, A, it wouldn't happen that a, a gallery would be like quoting some academic <laughs> and you'd probably laugh him out of the room. And yet, like there was this confluence of emergent academia with the kind of revolution in theory happening in super elite universities in America and to a degree Europe, and then the market aligning with that. And I wish I had a clear answer about why that's not feasible now. But yeah, I mean, I, and to some degree, I guess those October powers got really entrenched. I mean, Hal Foster's, of course, moved forward a lot, and all of them have to a degree. But I mean, they're just not in touch with that young generation. And maybe there will be a kind of revolution as associate professors and people in their 30s and 40s get tenure and kind of make some moves. But I don't know, what is your sense of it? What changed? I mean, I think that galleries were largely subsumed by digital platforms mm. in the late aughts and early teens. Um, it was interesting. I've said this before on the pod, but you know, the galleries here have all been closed, but you can still make private appointments to see shows. And it's brought back a very different sense of galleries because it's really regrounded the gallery as an IRL platform for running into people, sharing gossip, sharing your views. Yeah. It's made it much more personal. I mean, it's also art was always just a placeholder for a set of social relations, right? And a metro opening would be like, I mean, I remember being like so nervous to even set foot in there during an opening. I'm totally, totally like hovering by the curb or something. <laughs> and like, I mean, I, I don't think that that model is relevant, but I do think gatekeeping to some degree is, but we have to do it in a different format. I was emailing with a couple different friends. You know, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, when Claire Fontaine used to show at Rena Spallings, they mm. graduated to metro. Right, and, right, right. And I mean, if we say it that way. And at the time, Rena Spallings took out a full page ad art forum saying, Claire Fontaine no longer works here, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it seemed like this big scandal, like, oh my God, they'd pay to like do an ad. And the boundary crossing that was happening there seemed so intense, but there is no social apparatus like that. I mean, now with NFTs, the personal relations seem so far apart. But Dan, I mean, as you say, there's actually a culture of people trading NFTs who are looking at each other's wallets, who are aware of what each other have. I mean, how do you see that model, Dan, relating to this model that Andrew and I are waxing nostalgic about? <laughs> well, first of all, I think it's totally fair that you're waxing nostalgic about it because, I mean, personally, it's like one of the only gallery. I'm pretty cynical about the art world in general, but this is one of the only galleries that I really respected and like <laughs> ever really aspired to showing at more than any other blue chip gallery. Like, I get it. It was really, even for me, really, really important. But yeah, I think... They knew what they had to do to compete in this new world, and they chose not to. And it was sort of like seppuku or something. I mean, honestly, it reminds me of Mark Fisher committing suicide right at the beginning of the Trump term. Sort of like, I'm not going to be part of this anymore because I see what it's becoming and I don't like it. And yeah, the NFT model, it's so clearly direct lineage from pictures generation logic. And it is, mm. it's kind of interesting that none of them, like, I, I don't know why Cindy Sherman hasn't done it. And I mean, of course, a Sherry Levine NFT would be quite interesting. But yeah, yeah there is this new, I, I don't know how much this wallet looking thing is, but that is, of course, like, that's the site. Uh, this is the only site for NFTs. It's public knowledge of a ledger of who has what. It's a much less intimate uh, model, even though there's this sort of surveillance happening. 
Are there gatekeepers, Dan? Do you think, is gatekeeping happening on Discord servers like Friends with Benefits? Or do you see any kind of critical model emerging? I mean, not that that is Mm. going to be the way that value is produced, but knowing the the metro model, what do you see that maybe relates? The exact opposite model, Uh I think. It's it's Uh imagining gatekeepers are the enemy Ignorance of this other art world is just kind of given. This is a tech thing in general. You need to have this ignorant, naive optimism about whatever you're doing. And so you kind of just like can't be too aware of art history or history in general. So I've definitely seen that. I've seen these big NFT collectors brag about how finally there's a market for living artists. And so like clearly... Like they're just not aware that there was this like contemporary art market or that living artists meeting with collectors collectors and doing studio visits. Like, of course, the engine of it is so small and personal actually in the art world. So, but, but yeah, but what I think is the model is like, you're going to have indexes of NFTs and it's designed to be able to make derivatives out of like, I mean, it's quite interesting. It's so pictures. I mean, it's direct lineage, but they'll just be index funds of various NFTs. You won't even necessarily Mm. know any of the art. It's literally just fill in whatever content it is. It doesn't matter. I think that's kind of interesting. It's really dark, (laughs) but the aesthetic component is almost almost wow. not even there, you know? But I mean, wow. the aesthetic component was very much, I mean, the picture generation was so hyper aware of something being media agenic and their reframing of value. I mean, famously, you have Louise Lawler photographing works by famous artists in collectors' homes. So she's re-photographing the work, but very specifically in the context of the like upper class or bourgeois setting. So it's very aware of a painting's role as a placeholder for value and also aestheticizing what that sign exchange value looks like in its sociological context. And I don't know, I mean, so it's almost the opposite of NFTs in a sense. It's really hyper aware. But I don't know, Andrew, maybe you draw further connections between how pictures, generations, artists were understanding value or understanding the image. And I mean, I don't know if you really want to speak to the NFT conversation, but please feel welcome to. Well, no, Dan, I just love that because I am so fascinated by NFT, but just completely baffled by it at the same time. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is, I mean, uh, Janelle Rearing gave an interview yesterday, I can't remember where it was, but she was talking about, and this is such an obvious point, but I hadn't thought about it. She said that, you know, one of the reasons they were so successful commercially and in terms of getting their artists in museums was that people could look at the work and easily understand it. And I never thought about that before. I mean, if you just think about the barrier to entry between an abstract expression and it's like a Pollock painting or a conceptual artwork or it's all written down or really anything of that ilk, even a Warhol. I mean, you can look at a Cindy Sherman and you just instantly get it. You know, here's someone constructing how a film is made and how a woman is portrayed in a film. And that is the moment when the limited edition model of photographs takes off within the contemporary art market. And of course, NFT is just like that taken to hyperdrive so far as I understand. Totally. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, I guess over the past 40 years with Metro Pictures, obviously there's been a change in the scarcity of images in general and then the total mm. normalization of recontextualizing of images like teenagers do every day, Sherman style self as medium. Like Gen Z is also the pictures 
generation. Like, yeah. And I also just wonder what Metro Pictures' relationship with this change where basically the wider public started engaging with images in the way a lot of their artists did. Like, do you think perhaps they felt like they hit this like peak where like literally the young generation like is a pictures generation <laughs> and it seemed like it was just so too ubiquitous right. to really pursue the thread. I don't know. Yeah. No, I think it's a really interesting point. Yeah, in a way, like it, like life caught up with with what was happening. I mean, I started thinking that way, like even just a few years ago. I mean, you encapsulated really nicely this sense where um, Cindy Sherman was on Instagram and started posting using like the Facetune stuff and really getting wild. And like it was quickly apparent that after she'd been playing around with those apps for you know a couple weeks, she was doing stuff that was like more sophisticated than what she was able to do on Photoshop ever before. And, 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 and in interviews, she always made this kind of careful distinction that, you know, oh, like I'm just kind of like playing around on Instagram and it's a different thing. But that's where you start to think, yeah, like, I mean, maybe she'll do NFTs or maybe there'll be a sort of digital, you know, licensing turn in her work. Because to me, a lot of those things that she was doing were as conceptually sophisticated and visually sophisticated and seductive as any of the really out there weird work from the last 40 years. I wonder though, those artists, which structurally they're so relevant to the way that images are constructed today, value is constructed today, but what do you see as their primary platform? I mean, I think it's been true for at least 10 years for the general public, the value of the gallery as the site for interacting with an artwork has diminished greatly. So I keep asking this question in our podcast, what is the public sphere now? Is it just ClearNet social media? Is it something else? I mean, Art Basel hasn't even been open in, you know, more than, <laughs> more than a year, but and even so was a bit of a problematic platform for this. Um, so where do you see it going? And maybe also in Seoul, at the Asian market, you notice there being a different way of sharing Images. Oh man, no, it's it's such a fascinating question and it's something I I've been thinking about a lot. I mean, one thing that sticks out to me, one major difference between when I was working at Metro and when I got involved in art maybe 5 years before that, so the past 15 years is like no gallery used to have or very few galleries used to have like a publicity department or like a PR uh -huh. agency and then it's over the past 10 years where they've become these like gigantic machines. And so that suggests to me the platform is this kind of mass media thing. I guess that trickles into sales via fairs. But as in terms of like a visual platform, it's social media, I guess. Right. And to Cindy Sherman's credit, I think she's the most famous of that group and has most aggressively made that turn. Whereas like a Robert Longo has become more classical in his drawings. I mean, now he does yeah, these like yeah. amazing immaculate reproductions of abstract expressionist paintings, Pollux. He has these assistants working on them. And that stuff, like you can't, he's almost pushed against them. I mean, you can't really get the appeal of that stuff via Instagram. It's more like you have to, get up close to it. So. But was Robert Longo represented by yes. So like, I do wonder like what their relationship with the internet was kind of, I mean, Robert Longo directed Johnny Mnemonic. Yeah. Right. In like the <laughs> mid nineties. Right. So it's like, what was like, what was Metro pictures in the cyberpunk era? Oh, what was Metro pictures sure. in the early internet hype zone? Like, well, how were they 
dealing with how this was changing the medium they were focused on. Oh man, a lot of the, they were, they were showing a lot of, I'm trying to think. I mean, one person who stands out is they only showed her briefly in the late eighties, but like a Gretchen Bender who yeah. was doing a lot of work with, I mean, she famously made like a trailer for them. That was like a Metro pictures commercial oh, yeah. and she, and doing a lot of stuff with television I mean, in analog ways, like they showed Kippenberger who was doing like the subway metro sculptures connecting like disparate parts of the world. So there were elements of it. But yeah, as far as I know, there was never like, there was never an aggressive cyberpunky turn. There was a real like West Coast punk sensibility from like Tony Orsler, Mike Kelly, Jim Shaw to a degree. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess it is worth actually mentioning the German connection. Yeah. Um, it seemed that like more than most galleries, there was a real attraction. What do you think it was that they saw in each other? Whoa, <laughs> that's a tough question. I mean, there yeah. for sure was, hmm, I'm, I'm trying to avoid like overgeneralizing, but I mean, it's the great, Peter Schuldel's written about this in relation to the pictures generation, but like, it's the great example of like an art movement as just like a pure gang, right? So you have like yeah. Helene Weiner coming from California and she knows people at CalArts and Janelle Rearing is in New York and through Cindy Sherman, Robert Longo, there's this connection weirdly with Buffalo, which we don't think about as an art city now, but had this huge, robust art scene. And there was this Tony sense- Conrad. Yes, exactly. And Amache, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, just this incredible, and this sense that they were kind of all in it together, and the critics that you were talking about earlier were pushing each other along, and there was this, like, playful competition. And for sure, in Germany, there seems to be a related sensibility between Kippenberger and Olin sharing studios and dealers of that generation coming up together. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that like a lot of times when we talk about pictures, we do talk about the image and we talk about this cold, detached aesthetic. But in fact, it was so much about the social. And I love that you say that they were part of this like international art gang. Of course, people like Kippenberger and people like Olin, they make compelling images, but they were very much about pushing on social relations and really forming themselves as a gang. And when I think about if there is some part of the metro formula that would make sense to preserve from this. It would be that idea of gang crafting, as we often talk about on new models. And, you know, as much as you may be dealing with mass images and posting to mass platforms, that there is a conversation that's more private. And that aspect of the Metro formula seems to still be relevant now. It just has to be. Maybe that's what they felt was really missing missing with both the pandemic and the clear net social media dominated age. Yeah, totally. Rest in peace. Uh, do you know what this year is going to look like for Metro's program? Or I wish I knew. I am so curious. I hope they go out with like a big bang and fireworks and knowing Janelle Rearing and Holly Weiner, I mean, they'll do, I'm sure, interesting, odd stuff. And yeah, if people want to learn more, I would say the website is pretty robust. They've built it out in a nice way. And there's an online show of even just their invitation cards which is pretty satisfying because there's some weird ones and uh, like Louis Lawler would sometimes make them almost into like little works of art in terms of political messaging or conceptualizing around it. I'd also recommend there's the book CalArts Mafia, which talks a lot about that hothouse late 70s, early 80s scene. And I haven't read it in a while, but if I'm remembering correctly, people are really frank, like artists are interviewed, it's an oral history. And people are like pretty open and sort of mean about... Uh, <laughs> ways people treated each other and I remember reading as a young a young writer and like 
uh, found it inspiring and exciting that people go through crazy stuff and you keep making art and sometimes you end up in the history books. Totally. And if people want to find out more about your writing, where's the best place for them to find that? Oh, you can go to my uh, Twitter, I guess. Just my name, Andrew Russa. Great. Andrew, this is so cool that you could join us and add your personal knowledge and thinking on this period. Thanks. I'm a big New Models fan, so thank you. I appreciate it. It's fun being on. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks for coming on. It was just that it was about, we talked about the Royals and Carly talked about Justin Bieber and then Carly <laughs> talked about taxes. And, you know, I didn't talk about taxes. I talked about like a very weird spider-like formation of- Yeah, I thought that was interesting. We can say it. We can say it again. The whole reason why we're really getting on is because Julian has hot takes on the NFT market. No, but I think it was a big deal that we should maybe talk about. Okay, the so... People. You mean in post times we should talk about yes, it? Yes, the fact that the auction ended for $69 million. And who bought it as a... Meta Kovan, yeah. the founder of Metapurse. Can someone please tell me what Metapurse is? What is an no NFT idea. fund? I only just looked him up earlier today briefly when I read about it. And I've never heard of this before. There's also this social token called Whale, which is just like, I think it was one person who was a big NFT collector. The fund owns a bunch of NFTs. You buy shares in it. I, I assume this is one of those things. I mean, in a way, it makes a lot of sense that the idea would be to have joint ownership of these people, even if one person bought it to begin with. Also an anonymous or a, su a pseudonym anyways. Mm -hmm. Based in Singapore, mm -hmm. I think, mm -hmm. which I don't know. It's not like this right. is it's, increasing any kind of actual legitimacy. It's just exactly. social value. It doesn't, it doesn't, I mean, when somebody buys like a Damien Hurst, I mean, he actually just came out with an NFT as well, but Hurst's works oftentimes feel like gags, like almost like more valuable for the conceptual framing that they propose, like they put pressure on the market in X way. That's almost like more the thing than whatever. I mean, now he's selling these cherry blossoms. I mean, very nice images, but you know, the real play of course is like how they're interacting with the market. When someone buys one of those, it feels like there's social capital added to the work by who decides to put it into their collection. Right. But with this, I mean, it doesn't. It's Christie. Feel... Well, in this case, it's Christie's that's doing that role, basically. That's true. Not yeah, the Christie's. Yeah, good point. Yeah, it's and like this didn't increase the market in any way for NFTs. I mean, it's better than if it was Justin Sun. So, so tell us who Justin Sun is, because I didn't know this. So he's the founder of Tron, which is basically, at least it started out as a total Ethereum clone. There was a scandal about the white paper being straight up plagiarized from Ethereum. He is supposedly a protege of Jack Ma's. He plays that up a lot, but he went to some type of business seminar school thing from Jack Ma. He's just like a total showman, diva. He flies back and forth between San Francisco and Beijing and just like leaves wads of cash out on the desk, apparently. And he's really, really controversial because he... Well, yeah, plagiarizes stuff and he's just a hustler. And Tron is of dubious value still. And him buying it would just be like, yeah, I think people would have been really upset about it because he's like a demonized figure. Got yeah, it. I don't know. Uh -huh. I mean, he's upset he lost the mm -hmm. bid. He says that something like went wrong and that he should have won it. Uh, like a network connection or something? Something like, like that. And the person who ended up winning it, right, is basically... 
the guy who I've heard is like a really actually like not like a shady or evil mm. figure. He's a great guy. I've heard from someone who knows him personally, but essentially oh, so he's not though, fully it is, anonymous or only- he went by Medikovan, but I guess it was like. I mean, oh, Chrissy's did. So on Friday, they revealed the identity of the buyer as Medicoven, a pseudonym for the founder of Metapurse. But then they don't say who, what What that guy's government government name name is. is. But still, the thing is, it's the market validating the art that right now is totally just obsessed with the market. It just like eats itself and grows bigger. Mm -hmm. Autophagy that's nutritious somehow just from Mm -hmm. belief. Was what I think depression, uh, I think, is the only thing that can eat itself and grow bigger, <laughs> feed itself and grow bigger. So usually, it's similar. Usually true. it's bad things that are able to feed themselves and grow Cancer. bigger. Cancer. Yeah. I guess that's well, not exactly, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, essentially there was a lot of like this moment before the auction closed where people who are really invested in this space and think it's going to revolutionize the art world were like, well, this is the moment of we, we're validated now. Yeah. And of course... I mean, this is not a validation at all in terms of anything related to its artistic merits as art alone. I mean, I think Dean really got it right when he was like talking about boring art, like this proliferation of boring art. And I mean, it makes me think about several things. Like one, at this point in the age of like post 4chan, et cetera, we're so inured to sensational imagery or sensational two-dimensional content that it's surprising that we would actually value any image a lot more than any other image, right? Like, um, we know what images are actually powerful and they're the ones that like cause cancellation or cause political figures to gain outsized power or whatever. Those are not the kinds of images that are being circulated in this NFT space, nor could they. Like by them becoming NFTs would defang them. Their power would be like diluted as they became NFTs. Like these images that have been powerful over the past 10 years are powerful because they aren't allowed on platforms. They're radioactive on platforms. Am I right? I'm just trying to sketch here. Like what actually creates What value kind of image are you talking like about? You're talking about like banned oh, like content. Just like, like a meme that was like, especially like around 2016 when like people were trying to understand what to do with Pepe's, right? Like a Pepe, like a Pepe and Texticons was grounds for a big talk with the publisher and me about publishing potentially fascist content in a print magazine. Right. You know, meanwhile, you can have like Auto Mule, uh, like Herman Niche, right? An actionist or something. You can have something that seems like a lot more vile and it doesn't cause a problem. But the like Matt Fury frog was a potentially threatening image. So when we think about actual power of images and value of images, the things that become NFT don't really correlate to that. Am I right? I mean, I'm just trying to think about like well, what. No, Pepe NFTs are some of the original NFTs. That's but true. It's not a that's true. Yeah, correlation. Right. I mean, no, no, that's that's true. I mean, I think the main thing is that the images they don't actually become NFTs ever. You know, right? Like, they get right. associated with one, but making an NFT out of you know some viral image, it's just an abstraction. I don't know. So yes, of right. course, the power right. doesn't come from the NFT, but it also doesn't ruin it. It's just sort of, right. to me, it just seems almost superfluous, especially if you're tokenizing something that is already famous, you know, like a meme or something like that. It's really I mean, it, symbolic. It seems like, 
really intuitive. And I think like nobody really needs it spelled out in a way, but like, can you just talk through the logic of why you bought your Pepe GIF NFT? Oh, why would you buy Dan Keller? <laughs> did you buy it? I mean, I, there's a million reasons why it's like quite obvious, but like, if you were just to sum it up in a line or two, can you say why you chose that one? I just thought it was funny. It was the most recent one that was available. So it was easy to buy and it was specific art joke reference, but it right. was not an investment. Yeah. And it wasn't okay, because right. I okay. truly believe in the future of Twerky Pepe's. Um, but <laughs> okay. I just thought it'd be the first. I just thought it would be funny if it was the only NFT I owned or only NFT I ever owned. I mean, it okay. also is connected yeah. to the wider New Models legacy. I, I directed the Express Yourself video, which kind That's of true. sparked the twerking <laughs> meme in the mainstream public consciousness. Oh, right. It's now been permutated all the way to the point of a twerking Pepe, uh, <laughs> which now Dan has bought the NFT of. So. Yeah, and it was a Maurizio Catalan joke. And, you know, I, mean, I have to say I do... I do have a soft spot, not for that piece specifically. I don't really like that piece, although I have to admit that it's powerful, whatever the comedian. When I was in art school, he was an idol. I was a very big fan of the one-liner sculpture. Now I don't think it has the same power, but I mean, yeah. in some ways, Mauricio Catalan was like a precursor to PostNet in that it was like one-liners with objects, oftentimes ready-made. Oh yeah, definitely. Aesthetically too, just, I mean, this was also very popular at the time, but just the everything being made by mixed media, the one art production company in Berlin. I forget what prize it was. I don't think it was the Turner Prize. Maybe it was the Neue National Gallery Prize. But I remember one year they made, I think, two out of three of the artists' work. So it was all just one fabricator making all the work. But this aesthetic, <laughs> I think, was so... Yeah, that's kind of over now entirely. But that's very different than the NFT. <laughs> that's for sure. Kind of diametrically right. opposed. I remember a really powerful image online, though, the most powerful. I was thinking about this just today, but there's one image I encountered online that I never have forgotten, and it's a YouTube video from a group of, like, Palestinian kids who do parkour, and they uploaded this video of them, like, kind of out in the desert, and there's, like, and it's sunset. And it's like this like, kind of like melancholic dubstep is playing in the background. And there's like huge missiles like launched from Israel probably. I remember this. Exploding in the background. This. And they're all, um, they're all just doing backflips across the desert as these like bombs explode in the background. Uh, yelling Allahu Akbar, like God is great, doing backflips and huge fireballs just exploding and these booms exploding in front of the sunset in the distance behind them. That's right, one of the most powerful image, like pieces of media content I've ever seen in my life yeah. and that still sticks with me. Mm -hmm. Those Palestinian parkour kids should uh, mint that mm -hmm. <laughs> as an NFT. Yeah. I mean, yeah, YouTube already, I mean, no, there's there's almost no chance that they're getting the YouTube royalties from that, right? Yeah, I don't, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I mean, but with big stack platforms adopting these Web3 mechanics, super followers and everything making ways for their platform users to easily directly monetize their content. I mean, maybe in the future, like every YouTube video would have a buy this mm -hmm. YouTube video yeah, and I can imagine of it that. in the, in the yeah. future. Yeah, I mean, definitely. 
I mean, you can also just imagine YouTube videos starting to have these peak moments that then become those moments themselves become NFT or become somehow tradable. Kind of like NBA top shots where you can like highlights. Yeah. Where you can like own the different dunks or plays or different like top moments. You could imagine an ecosystem where videos have these peak moments that can be owned and traded. Do they have like bad moments on top shots? Like just like missed, like, like missed layups. And like- <laughs> Those are the cheap ones for sure. Just fumble. Yeah. Double dribbling. <laughs> I think it'd be funny if like, yeah. Tucker I want a double dribble bundle. <laughs> but yeah, I can imagine if like uh, newscasters or like yeah, Tucker Carlson having NFTs of his like snarkiest owns. It could definitely no. be a like <laughs> Fox News top shot. I can definitely imagine. Fox. <laughs> I mean, I can imagine someone just doing that rogue, like Tucker Carlson top snark. Like, yeah, top snark. Tuck- exactly. Well, that sounds more interesting than the proliferation of cinema 4D, like stupid images that end up as gifts. And I wonder also with all of the media that we've seen and as sophisticated, quote, quote, as we've become with memes, why so much NFT art defaults to just abstract, geometric, like it's kind of like bad deviant art. Like deviant art still yeah. has something kind of crusty about it. Something that like- There's like individual style there. It's not just yeah, presets. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it's like hand-drawn and there's like pathos in the images. And it's also like bad- Tumblr. Like it's a lot of the same aesthetics from whatever sea punk vaporwave kind of stuff, but like that was much more aesthetic and it was usually juxtaposed with other kind of imagery. Yeah. I just feel like even that kind of level of sophistication that you would see in the average cool Tumblr page, it's definitely not there anymore, even though it's taking so many cues from that. I mean, this is why I think Folia, honestly, like got to represent they're doing the best possible thing you could do with NFTs of like getting real artists that have actual acclaim within the art world and trying to present them to the NFT world. Yeah. And especially like classic work that was really important for the development of net art and early NFT, whatever. Like Zora is comparatively better than some other of these platforms, but like we need some gatekeepers for NFTs for them (laughs) to not. I mean, at this point, the aesthetic is just intrinsic to the medium, which it doesn't have to be, but it is. It is true that like the sort of like particle and texture modeling of Cinema 4D and real-time 3D and the fact that this technology has gotten widely available. I mean, it is like the most clear example of like a very new, qualitatively new feeling aesthetic that's come out in recent years. So it kind of makes sense. It's overrepresented. It, not that saying it's good art or, or not, but I'm just no, saying in terms of like- futuristic. I mean- Yeah, it feels qualitatively like new and just be able to model these chaotic natural particles like the movement of hair, the movement of fabric, the movement of sand, the movement of smoke, water. And then the other thing I I wanted to, this is just a coincidence, but is a a bit interesting and weird, is that both cryptocurrency and all of this 3D art we're seeing dominating the NFT space, they're all GPU driven. Mm -hmm. Like this is a very Mm -hmm. GPU technology. Well, blockchains, they're not run on CPUs like your um, Intel i9 chip. Right. They're run by graphics processing mm-hmm. units. Right. Much like higher. NVIDIA processors yeah. that are built to render, uh, do ray tracing and render like the kind of processors in your PlayStation 5. Right. Or 4. And 
blockchain, uh, all the computation, the proof of work stuff is all run with GPUs, mm. not CPUs. Additionally, rendering all of the 3D Cinema 4D type art that you see on uh, NFTs, that's all based on like really powerful GPUs as well. So I, I just find it kind of an interesting coincidence that this is a very GPU-driven space on like yeah. every single side of it. That's a good observation. Well, yeah, I mean, I feel like maybe like GPUs are better for imagination, whereas like CPUs are for logic. I think there's something there. <laughs> it's for like I mass mean, hallucinations. Quote, quote, imagine, yeah, mass hallucinations. Yeah. Right. I mean, the great thing is, is that there will be an art of this time. Like when we look back, art of this time will look like this. This is very clearly the art of this moment. I mean, it seems like futuristic, but it is art that comes from 2021. Just the way like looking at futurism in the 60s all looks like this one kind of aesthetic. You know, the interiors that were like future interiors with like... Oh yeah, I mean, it's going to be lines. immediately dated. That's yeah, clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. it's not even futuristic. It's like futuristic-esque or something. Like it's one layer removed. Right. Like it has the aesthetics of something that's futuristic, kind of. But it's obviously a futuristic thing that we've seen in the at least from the '90s. Like it's not like there is obviously it's like right. higher tech hair model, like, like like what you said, Julian. Particle but, modeling. Yeah. I mean, when you look at some of the stuff that Josh looks at, like all these competitive futurist ideologies, uh, like Gen Z ideologies, those futures that are just copying old images of the future, but then tricking them out with other elements, like geoengineering elements or something that are relevant now, those to me feel like actually futuristic. They're actually like imagining weird social dynamics plus these settings. I mean, they're not futuristic in the way that like SpaceX or something is futuristic. They're futuristic though in a fantasy space way that seems like way more out there and- yeah. There's more world, world, world building, building in terms of like the actual mechanics of the world, how it operates, how you imagine relations to right. work. And speculation is so much weirder and so much beyond like what an average person may be thinking about walking down the street. Yeah. I mean, I even think like Joshua Sitter intellectuals, like this account, that aesthetic of a lot of like the shitty 100%, memes, that is yeah. a much more futuristic aesthetic. aesthetic 100%. For sure. Obviously more interesting and just like, I don't know. Yeah. But I think there is something, of course, like the way that you browse through NFTs on one of these marketplaces, you're going to have this competition for maximalist, lowest common denominator aesthetic. It's like a porn site grid. It's like the same right. logic yeah. of that. Like most of these artists are not famous, you know, not for a lot of people anyways. So you're not like looking at the context in a way that if you were looking at Contemporary Art Daily, let's say hypothetically, I'm looking at the name of the artist and what space it's in and the context just to understand like where it's coming from and what its value right. be. There's no real way of doing that here. So yeah, you're just going to have like the brightest colors. It's just like you're trying to appeal to a baby, like that level. And I guess that's just sort of like that comes from that that aesthetic comes from the nature of the platform. So I mean, it is sort of intrinsic yeah. to to the genre. And maybe it doesn't have to be, but it it's at least intrinsic to the marketplaces, which is basically where you go to see this stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's also like. Damien Hurst also innovated, you know, having the auction house be the site of the exhibition. And I think like his exhibition on the day that Lehman collapsed in 2008, it was at, was it at Sotheby's? Was it, or was it Christie's? Uh, hold on. Actually, I just want to pull that up really quickly. I'm sorry. I'm breaking the rule. Um, it was September 15th, 2008. 
They also produced a catalog that cost approximately 240000 and they put on a party for 1,500 guests. Who, I'm, I'm reading from uh, artsy.net, who nippled foie gras wrapped in gold leaf. The auction was expected to bring in at least $120 million. But the morning of the sale... Lehman Brothers announced it was closing its doors. The 56 lots at that evening sale went 97% sold. And the two lots that did not find buyers during the auction were sold before the night was over. On the cusp of the golden recession, Hearst walked away with $172 million. So there you go. Yeah, because it was in London, right? So I think like as the news was happening, it was morning. So it was like, it was simultaneous with like the market opens at like 2.30 PM London time. So I think like- you know, pro- well, I guess, what do they had Blackberries then? Were there, there was Blackberries. You're watching it on their Blackberries yeah. as it was happening. I mean, that was like such a perfect encapsulation of the moment. I mean, it was like clearly his best work. That was the Diamonds Call came afterwards, right? No, Diamonds was before because oh. I remember when I was interviewing to start working at Art Forum, I remember walking into the office and that was the issue that was big on their display monitor. I see. But the skull was a scam because he bought it himself, as far as I know, or like him and right. some other yeah. investors. Whereas, well, actually, maybe he bought some of the same art in 2008, but I assume he actually sold a lot of it. So that was much more of a, it was a grift instead of a hoax, which is, I think, yeah. more admirable, I guess, <laughs> somehow. Yeah. Or it's, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's more historically significant to pull off a grift than a hoax. Um, and now he's selling 10,000 works of art on paper, and it's called The Currency. And he's selling the entire thing as an NFT. It's like the NFT just gives you ownership for the 10,000 works of art that are kept in a vault somewhere. So (laughs) this is going to trigger me. This is like my laser eyes, my red laser eyes are going out because that is not encoded in the smart contract and it's just a LARP and there's no reason (laughs) for there to be an NFT. There could just be a contract, but it would be very cool if you figured out a way where that was somehow actually real. But not well, maybe Damien Hurst is just going to break the contract and be like, "Haha, I lied," and like try to enforce it in court. Yeah, yeah, could be. I mean, I, mean, I, I really wonder what legal protection NFT buyers have. I think that's definitely a very interesting question. I did hear this interesting thing about minting an NFT as an alternative to copywriting. Like, if you mint in the NFT of the particular idea or thing you created, you'd have blockchain proof of the time and origin of your coming up with this idea or like an alternative to patenting or something. Hmm. The cost is probably about the same of minting an NFT and buying a copyright. I mean, because I guess in like, you know, the United States where you just have to prove you did it first. I mean, it would be a good way of like backing up your claims to the patent office more than it would be enforceable by itself. But yeah, it's just like didn't wasn't the old style that you like put the you put the idea in a piece of paper and you mailed it to yourself and you keep the envelope sealed with the Yeah, that's the old school one, yeah. How does that work? You like you put your patent in an envelope and you mail it to yourself and you have a timestamp because <laughs> it's the postmark. I I feel, I feel like I've seen that before. Um, I don't know if that's just like it seems like kind of like Looney Tunes, but um, <laughs> maybe it was real. Sounds legit. No, I, I remember that. We'll I mean, in some ways, I think there's so much more to say about people because the first part of this podcast is us, you know, speaking with Andrew Russith about picture right. generation. And so maybe there's a way to connect it. Like, well, I mean, do Dean, you have any thoughts? Dean Kissick's 
essay think, is excellent. Excellent. Kind of, really excellent. But I mean, do we have thoughts on like, is it, I mean, because everybody was so dismissive of cause, myself included. Although I remember Michael Sanchez, friend from New York, great art historian. And he was like, oh, cause is so interesting. And actually Yelena Christic also was like, cause is really interesting. And it's true. It did actually tell us something about that time, which we've said this before on the cast, when art was starting to resemble memes, memes were resembling art, that you know, it was the fact that that sold at auction should have been, I don't know, a flag that this was happening, this transition was happening. But so like, is it worthwhile understanding what it is about people? I mean, you could say people stupid because like, that's what my first thought is. But like, there are a lot of NFT artists and like he wasn't making works that were selling more than anybody else before that. So what was it about people that made him just like take off? Like why, like what special characteristic did he have? I mean, the humor, the like grotesqueness, like what was it that actually differentiates people from like all the other artists that are making NFTs? I wonder if there was really some type of market collusion that caused it. I don't think it's any type of aesthetic thing. Yeah. I don't think that he had any particularly viral success, a little bit. I definitely saw his work increasingly in the fall, just like that Biden rendering. I remember people- Describe his work. There's a, kind quickly. of a large variety in aesthetic, but it's mostly like weird, grotesque, kind of like cause style, deconstructed pop culture imagery. And like grotesque mashups with, I don't know, like Michael Jackson with like Mickey Mouse ears and he's pregnant with like a robot and Donald Trump is there and he's, oh yeah. <laughs> it's very yeah, like yeah. cool, cool 3D world, right? And it's also though like collapse of 20th century, like all of these signifiers that maybe Gen Z doesn't even care about, but like Millennials would know, Gen X obviously knows, but Millennials would care about, would still have some resonance. Yeah, it's definitely millennial references. It's not Gen Z at all. Yeah, it also reminds me of Eamon Hawke's work. The most recent one, I think it was posted on the Discord was like, I don't know, something about the afterlife of Trump, but it was actually based on Berserk like the anime, which the brand of sacrifice emoji is from, but it's just like very Lovecraftian, surreal, kind of realistic blender 3D animation. Um, but I, I think in the future, we'll look back at people's work and consider it a far more like ominous mirror of the contemporary right now, what this time was like. Like right now, everyone's just like, oh, it's weird and great. But you can imagine it being a really grotesque and absurd like reflection of this time and this moment and the conflation of memetics and the market fucking on the floor of Christie's, you know? This was my point <laughs> by bringing up the Damien Hurst, the, the auction, because I think it's, yeah, obviously this is emblematic of the times in the exact same way that that was for those times. And it's a very different type of bubble. That was a bubble of like right. developing nation oligarchs trying to like show off to each other. Uh, it was much more about like globalization where this is, like you said, yeah, this is a mimetic, artificial, also, you know, federally mandated bubble in a way. You know, 2008 mm -hmm, had, you know, mm -hmm. was a direct result of some type of governmental policies, but it wasn't just money printing in the same way. It wasn't just creating value and then letting the people just assign it kind of randomly right. based off of their you know, hopes and desires. It's a very Adam Curtis take, but we're very much in that um, moment. So yeah, I think this, I mean, this happened with cause and I think it's going to happen with people is like the legitimacy will be retrofitted because the market's going to have to. And the same thing happened with Oscar Murillo. Yes. I mean, he was very controversial 
but collectors loved him. Oh, yeah. And then everyone decided that that practice was actually interesting. And then it became really influential. And then everything started looking like that. But I remember there was definitely a process of legitimization that happens after the market, for sure. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I think but, critics are interested in like why society or like a small group would value it so highly. And then they, yeah, retroactively imagine why. And those theories then give it value. But art collectors still have to be buying it first, not just guys who own crypto funds, right? I mean, who are the critics going to retroactively like elevate this stuff if like not like non-art collectors are the ones buying it? That's the case with cause. And Damien Hirst, I mean, because Damien Hirst is like the main YBA, the face of YBAs. I mean, he had, he was very embedded in a art world in the 90s. But, you know, YBAs were also seen like cause in the 90s. Like they were seen as stunt centric market art. Mm -hmm. It wasn't serious. It was happening at the same time as a lot more like identity focused work or AIDS related, like social justice related work. And YBA art was just seen as, uh, what's the word for it? Superfluous kind of, right? Like superfluous, but something more like, like which is like gauche plus superfluous plus actually violent that they're doing this at the same time. And to be into YBA art would discredit you from other art markets. So if you're buying, I mean, of course you'd have to have a lot of money to buy Hearst. And, you know, some big people obviously like bought, bought these YBAs, but there was so much hatred towards Hearst in the nineties. I mean, he was kind of the people of the nineties. I mean, not exactly because he came up as an artist. He had other artist friends, you know, so like they still cared about some kind of art world, whereas people doesn't. I mean, it's just some like dude who's like in his fifties or forties or. People's like. Yeah, I think he's late. Almost 40. I think he's born 1980 or something. Oh. I always think about like who, who is the collector who like bought some Jake and Dino's Chapman pieces 20 years ago and now like in his mansion, does he have like swastika clown mannequins? Well, I mean, that's Saatchi created all of that market. Oh, it's just just Charles Saatchi. It it could be similar if there, I mean, maybe Meta Kovan is the Charles Saatchi of the moment and he's going to create a whole market out of this. But in in the same way that the Sex Pistols, it's like a very British thing, I think. It's this astroturfed culture thing yeah, that yeah. Like, is chic to do in the UK. And then right after you had like Deitch projects in New York, right? That's right, so you similar. Had these like yep. downtown right. skater, scumbag kind of yeah. fashion, yeah. et cetera, Iraq and all this stuff. That's a very good point. Yeah, I would say Deitch would be in like electroclash, meeting art, feeling like it's just spectacle. And yeah, it feels part of that same. And of course, cause comes out of that that kind of mm-hmm. downtown skater type thing, right? That's like, right, totally. cause comes out of that. And then Beeple, of course, feels like a natural like extension of cause. So yeah, I don't think Beeple is actually a new phenomenon. The fact that it's an NFT changes it a little bit. The fact that he's a total outsider. I mean, I'm sorry, Julian, this guy is not 40. He is 40. Yeah, he no, born I think, in 1981. I think right. Wait, no, and- I know he looks... Also, like, you know, we're in Berlin. We've been pickled by whatever type of lifestyle we've all chosen. And we don't... I feel like a lot of Americans age harder than expat Berliners do. (laughs) That's just my anecdotal (laughs) observations, but... I I always think it's hilarious when you watch, like, a a movie from, like, the late 70s or something. And there's, like, some guy who looks, like, definitely by 2020 standards, you're like, that guy is... 50 to 60 years old. And then he's like, in the film, he's like 32. Oh, yeah. It's always yeah. like, like guys in their, like characters in their 30s, like they're going through their second divorce and they, they're like half bald and they look like they're 50. That's how it used to be back yeah. then. I think it's because everyone tanned a lot and smoked a lot, maybe. maybe also but part of it. 
Yeah, I, I, I found that very, very weird. <laughs> I I've, I've saw a bunch of like Maybe I've seen sunscreen. a lot of uh, I've seen a lot of clickbait with that premise, and I think a lot of it is just like hairstyles make them look old. But I think also there is something there, and people definitely aged a lot harder. And I mean, Masha is always talking about this too, just like American seventy-year-olds versus the seventy-year-olds she knew when she was growing up. There's a very big difference. You mean in Russia? Yeah, in Russia, like because like seventy like means you can like in America means you can like you're probably you're probably like, the president. Oh, you're <laughs> yeah. exactly. Or you like ride, you ride tandem bikes with your parents. With your, yeah, your, with your, your parents are like 60, 66 yeah. maybe. Yeah, 66, mine are close but they look like they're too. like 50. Yeah. Yeah. Same. I mean, all of your, yeah, yeah. you're. Like my mother who like, so yesterday we had this talk for UCLA. And yeah, of yeah. Course, it went well, it seems like. It seems like it went yeah. well. It's great. Thank you, NM gang, for coming on the chat. That's so amazing. But uh, of course I had given, I had posted the link to Facebook. I forgot that that meant my mom would both join and also would share it with her friends. So I like, oh, up the zoom there's my mom there's my neighbor they're all <laughs> tuning in for this meme talk and my mom leaves her video on the whole time julian was paranoid that i was gonna just start having a conversation, conversation with with <laughs> it's sort of like a very contemporary nightmare that you'd have like it is yeah. Yeah. you're naked my and your undergrad- mom is there and you're giving a public speech <laughs> All at once. Well, cool. Well, what else should we say? I mean, do you want to say anything about RIP Azealia and Ryder? No, not worth it. I mean, she just posted these meme white boys always want to be my boyfriend. They need to leave me alone. I just want some head. Like, um, <laughs> not with Ryder. And yeah, so there, well, there you go. Yeah, we didn't, well, the NFT sleuthing, but I guess we have an interview scheduled with this Polpo gallery. We'll see if it is fruitful or not, but I don't know. I mean, it might end up being that it's a real gallery, really is Richard Prince. He really bought that NFT. It's all real. I mean, I'm prepared (laughs) to be pleasantly surprised, but we'll see. So let's just break down the story super quick so people can be anticipate. Okay. Uh, Ryder and Azalea's supposed audio sex tape, it auctioned off on foundation for it wasn't auctioned, but it just sold for 10 ETH. There was only one bidder. It was a user named Ralton Fighter, which was a play on Fulton Ryder, which was a pseudonym of the artist Richard Prince and I guess the name of the bookshop that he had. Yeah. If you look into this Ralton Fighter's profile, he is supposedly an NFT artist who lives in Montana, though it's very clear that that's not true. Although who knows actually at this point, and he makes a lot of intentionally dumb, I would say, art joke NFTs where there's like John Baldessari jokes or Barbara Kruger or uh, Christopher Wool. And I was looking at who was buying it or not. And, you know, there seems to be a lot of weird fake transfers and stuff. But this Ralton Fighter guy is now auctioning off that audio sex tape for 150,000 ETH, which would make it, I think, uh, the third most expensive artwork if it sells, which it well, it won't. But yeah, but then the, anyone can do yeah. that. Anyone could just mint anything and set the price for no. 200,000 ETH and beat it's it. It's really stupid, right? but I definitely think journalists will take the bait because I think like I've seen that so many times. Like also this clickbait articles about like the most expensive burger in the world and it's gold plated and comes with caviar and stuff on it and it costs $100,000. It's like you can have that on your menu and you can take a photo of one 
That doesn't mean anyone has ever bought it, but you still get the press coverage. <laughs> that seems like something from like the 19th century that they'd have at Coney Island or something. <laughs> yeah. It feels like the, <laughs> that the, kind of the two dollar burger. That's what it would have been. Yeah. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Um, this place, I remember some ramen place where it was like a fifty dollar bowl of ramen, and it's free if you finish it. <laughs> okay, that's a different one. The the food that's too big to consume as a yeah, stunt. No, yeah. yeah. That's not a very sustainable business model, I think. Pretty waste, a little bit wasteful. It's like, I dare you to not waste all this food I prepared for you. And then also like buffets that charge you, like they weigh you and then charge you according to your weight. What? After you're before and after. you go in. Yeah. The trick is you just don't drink water. No, no, not before and after. They just say like, oh, okay, if you're a very big person, you're going to eat more than a very okay, big person. Okay, that seems like you could sue them for <laughs> that. That's not, Julian, that is I not true. I prefer the way <laughs> station version, just like you're a truck coming you know, on the scale yeah, before exactly. and after. I like that a lot more. Um. <laughs> or like the vegan restaurants that would just weigh your plate because it's basically just all vegetables anyway. So you would just weigh your plate and then whatever your plate costs and that's like weighed, then that's how much you'd pay. Like right. my salad bar, I guess they do that too, right? They weigh your salad oh, bar. God, the like hacking, the like buffet hacking is one of the most like <laughs> creepy, uniquely American pastime. Also, I have to say like of all the food, like what's like, like people say like haggis is bad or something you'd never eat. I'm sorry if this sounds like elitist or something, but like, you know, the like delis that have the salad bars yeah. in Midtown mm-hmm. and it just smells disgusting. Oh, yeah. It smells like hard-boiled eggs oh, mixed right. with like macaroni cheese salad. It looks like Salamonella Fest. It's like, it's just so disgusting. And then it's not cheap. It's like $15 for uh, your little sampler. Well, that's a whole thing. You have to hack it. But it's like so disgusting. Like Some people can like pick their nose. and It's like New York City Midtown. There's nowhere to eat. Like, I always eat at the taxi driver places. Well, those were better. Those are but, very yeah, good. Those are better. No, but buff- no, buffet hacking is, I mean, I also think one of the most, this is also extremely bizarre. This goes like along with like Fiji water in America is uh, crab legs at Las Vegas buffets are like- I was like just thinking a, about that. Like a famous thing normies always talk about. And it's like, <laughs> oh, I went to the Bellagio buffet and got unlimited crab legs. It's like, you're going to the middle of the desert to eat <laughs> unlimited crab legs from like the Arctic Sea off of the coast of Alaska. Yeah. Like what? This is like so opulent and ridiculous. Yeah. I, I had a lot of fun at Agreed. the, I think it was called the Bacchus or Bacchanal Buffet at Caesar's Palace. Definitely had crab legs. <laughs> yeah. When we were th- when I was thinking about the way station, I just was hallucinating somebody. I was hallucinating crabs. It was some kind of primal yeah, <laughs> primal association. The best thing about Vegas is the roller coaster. Which one? The New York, New York one. The one at the New York, New York. Yeah, because oh. you're just riding a roller coaster through Las Vegas. It's amazing. Wait, it's outside. Yeah, I go. Well, it's outside and inside, oh. and no one really rides it. So you can ride it a lot. <laughs> it's really fun. Yeah. Um, but um, Rolton Fighter. Okay, okay so well, we're the gonna, mystery will be the mystery yeah. will be solved. I will, I'll do um, some more research Tuesday, too into the different wallets but rider I, I didn't say the whole story but rider dm'd me and told me richard prince bought the sex tape nft <laughs> i thought it was him because the name rhymes with rider and i don't right. think it really sold because whatever um and i don't even yeah. know if there's really an audio tape because of course it's not in the nft it's not uploaded right. anywhere so it's a gentleman's agreement between yeah azalea and rider and you uh, i don't know <laughs> 
<laughs> Seems like a airtight contract. Yeah. <laughs> well, this does relate to this tax situation where I ended up using like, an online tax service. And so, okay, so I like give them all my information and then I kind of just don't hear from them. And a couple of days after like, my card was charged, these other weird charges like on from like walmart.com for like 250 bucks show up and like they're not from me. So I have to cancel my card. And after watching Annihilation with Julian, my thought was like, like, oh, maybe this expat tax online thing is kind of a scam. And maybe it's actually like not legit. And so- Sorry, you had a total meltdown about whether or not this was a fraudulent service at 2.30 in the morning. (laughs) And you heroically traced it to Austin, Texas. Yes. So the next day I call all these numbers. A lot of them, they're dead numbers. Nothing happens. And I finally get this guy in Texas who's like, oh, we're not the company. We're just a company that like issues LLCs and they shouldn't have even used our address. And I'm like, okay, this is so shady. And so I keep Google searching. I find the owner. He lives in Australia. The person who's working on my taxes maybe is in the Philippines or I find some LinkedIn that matches the name that makes kind of sense. I finally, like after calling a bazillion numbers, find some lady in Toronto who then like quickly pulls up my file and is like, oh yeah, don't worry. We're sending you some questions today. Uh, It's all fine. And then sure enough, the email came through with some more questions and like kind of legit, but also kind of not. And it occurred to me that today it is completely possible to have a tax service, which is so distributed that it can be both legit and also fraudulent at the same time. Like they totally could have actually stolen my credit card. That's completely possible. And at the same time, be the ones who are like legitimately processing my taxes. Like it's all possible. Because the guy in Australia setting up an LLC in Texas and then hiring tax preparers in the Philippines and a call service in Toronto. I mean, call services, I think it was a lady with her cell phone. Like I called and she answered with her first name and there's a kid crying in the background. Okay, it's COVID. That's what happened. But it was strung together so oddly that like there's all these layers of abstraction. I mean, it's like any global supply chain, right? And there's so much leakage at all the points. And I had the sense of there being these whole economies, like informal, like undercommons that were starting to develop. Uh, like also these Walt drivers. It's kind of like Deliveroo, but like yeah. on there. And I spotted a Walt driver on a, uh, a bird On a bird scooter, scooter even better. So, yeah. And, and you see all these guys in uniform and they're just hanging out in the park. You can just imagine that there must be these other kinds of IRL dark forests. It's also, the weird thing is like they all wear uniforms and then they meet together for lunches and stuff or to hang out after their shifts in parks. So there's groups of like, you know, 10 or 15 of them all hanging out together in the same uniform. And it's just like this suddenly like hyper visible class. What you're describing sounds like postmen. Like they wear uniforms and they go around delivering things and I'm sure they hang out (laughs) with each other. distributed they don't group together they're, in the they're, they're in unions i think that's the big difference it just seems to me like there's an undercommons that's developing yes that's what i mean there's like, it's like a, another kind of network that's developing visibly like in the public space maybe that's also because no one else is in the public space these are the only people that can convene in one base but yes well, yeah. um maybe that's it because julian is trying to end this podcast yeah and, great um, thank we, you and we like end with something that feels like a little bit like funny joke or something you're good end with, funny funny, j- end with a funny yeah, joke. End with a funny, end joke. With a funny joke <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's good enough. Okay. Let's end with the. Okay, okay. We have a moment of silence, and the audience can imagine their own funny joke. <laughs> no. A little parasocial moment there. <laughs> Goodbye. 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 See you next time. Yep. Bye. Thank you for listening to New Models Topsoil, and thanks for your patience while we assembled this three part episode. 
Of course, huge thank you to Andrew Russith for joining us from Seoul. To all our new members, welcome. If you just subscribed and are stuck in the Discord troll void, DM us your Discord username on Patreon. It's been buggy and sometimes we don't get pinged, so give us 24 hours to fix it. Congratulations to all the Grammy winners, regardless of my own perception of the awards, and to everyone who is open to my honest assessment of this new age of intersections of institutions and identities, and how it honestly feels to try to understand it. The Grammys are actually a good reminder that value is not decided by the market alone. Value comes from history, from revealing a truth about the world, from institutions, sometimes, but most importantly, from your friends, from your squad, from your community. It always starts there first. See you next episode.